Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In an industry where technology is advancing rapidly, it's sometimes hard to track the changes, especially if you're not as immersed in it, like most of us are listening and us on the Out of Spec team and the many experts we have on the show. This expertise we have isn't passed down quite yet from generation to generation because things are quite new. But there are folks who have spent their life's work in sectors that have undergone tremendous changes throughout recent history. And I'm lucky enough to have Dr. Brian Wilson onto the podcast today to speak to his years of experience in energy, engineering, and entrepreneurship. Welcome back to the Out of Spec podcast. I'm your host, Francie. Thank you for tuning in today. As I said, I am so glad to be joined by our guest, Dr. Brian Wilson. How are you doing today? I'm awesome. Thank you. Thanks. It's great to be on. Great. So now your background is impressive and expansive, I must say. So I'll do our audience a favor and give them highlights so that they can understand just exactly what you've been up to throughout your days on Earth. Dr. Brian Wilson is Executive Director of the Energy Institute at Colorado State University in beautiful Fort Collins, Colorado, with which Out of Spec is quite familiar and where the recent DC fast charger from Autel Charging that was sent to the Out of Spec team lives. And we can get into more of that later, of course. But back to Dr. Wilson. He has also played a significant role in work to reduce the carbon into our atmosphere. He's also focused quite a bit on understanding hydrogen for heavy duty applications. He's also a professor of mechanical engineering with his own research lab called the Engines and Energy Conversion Laboratory that has made significant contributions in areas of internal combustion engines, oil and gas production technology, electrical grids, biofuels, and more. Not to mention, he is a co-founder of multiple impressive startups with a common thread of business for good running through their missions, including EnviroFit International, developing solutions for clean mobility, Solix Biosystems, developing large-scale production systems for algae-based fuels and specialty chemicals. Chemicals, very cool. Everything is actually pretty cool that I'm mentioning. X-Power, working in microgrid technologies in economically developing countries, and Factor E Ventures, a venture development firm supporting early-stage energy ventures, which you may not know, 
Dr. Wilson, I actually worked with for a while when I was mostly doing my business development consulting work back a couple years ago. And I've got to say, goodness gracious, when I see a rap sheet like this, I am just filled with enthusiasm. And it brings me back to the good old days in university where there's so much inspiration around. Inspiration that comes from my peers, from course learnings and research, and definitely from professors and leaders in academia who have really found their stride and done amazing work and research throughout their careers. So thank you again for coming on to the podcast, Dr. Wilson. I hope it will not be your last. And I know you have a significant bank of knowledge that both I and our audience are certainly interested in learning more about. So I thought we could start by talking about your work at the Energy Institute at Colorado State University. Can you tell me a little bit about the significance of the work there and why it also has founded itself at Colorado State? Uh, yeah, my, my day job, as you said, is uh, as director of the Energy Institute here at CSU, where we have over 200 faculty members working broadly in energy, uh, certainly a lot on science and technology, uh, but also in policy. So former Colorado Governor Bill Ritter has his energy policy centers, part of the Energy Institute. Uh, we have uh, faculty members working in behavioral aspects of energy, on economics, and we have a large uh, focus on uh, entrepreneurship, basically looking at how we get the solutions into production where they can have impact. Um, and uh, of those 200 faculty members, most are on the main university campus, which is about uh, uh, a mile uh, south of where I am right now. But I'm uh, joining you from our um, beautiful uh, powerhouse uh, energy campus. Love uh, it. So, uh, so called because, uh, let's see, okay, we're, we're in reverse on the screen, uh, because it began its life as a former coal-fired power plant. Uh, and that's a facility I uh, created uh, in 1992 in what was then an abandoned power plant. And it's now grown to be a uh, uh, you know very uh, vibrant uh, facility with uh, uh, over 30 faculty members, uh, 30 staff, and a couple of hundred students, um, as well as uh, 15 or more companies that actually are housed in the facility. Very incredible work, a lot of collaboration and solutions being created and enacted into the space. So thank you for giving us that background on that. I find it very interesting. I've been there before. I'm an alum of CSU and specifically the sustainability and business part of things. And I really enjoyed it. The community there and the efforts that are going on there are extremely innovative and that is recognized and proven again and again with work like yours and other ideas that come through the university are nurtured, are tested, and then launched into the real world. And one thing I find very intriguing, of course, in the world of science and technology is that there's plenty of research to be done, but there's also what comes after the research, how we make findings, inventions, models, and solutions actionable to really see the impact that they can have on our world. And that's really what led me on my path after studying biology and being drawn to research, but ultimately, pivoting towards a more business-oriented path, it was that desire that I had to be hands-on with the change that I want to see in the world. So I was wondering, can you tell me a bit about what you have most enjoyed about the intersection of science, research, and technology, and then the enactment of those solutions, products, or services into real-world applications? Yeah. Um, so typically in the university research world, uh, you look at interesting problems, and uh, you, you figure out maybe a piece of science, and then you 
in the classical model, you write that up and publish it in a academic journal, and you go on to the next interesting problem. Uh, we're a bit more impatient than that. And uh, our history has been about uh, trying to figure out if we can more uh, directly link the, the science and the work that we do uh, directly into impact. So a lot of our history over the past uh, 35 years that I've been at the university has been, much of it has been working with uh, established companies uh, to uh, to take our solutions and, and uh, uh, move them through their distribution channels. But in a lot of cases, uh, when you're working in cutting edge of technology or even in new markets, uh, you have to do the somewhat messier work of, uh, of, uh, of, of actually launching uh, new companies to get those into, uh, into production. And that's uh, uh, something we've done, I would say again and again, and uh, not only myself, but other uh, faculty uh, members here at Powerhouse uh, have, uh, uh, we have a, Pretty strong history of uh, developing solutions and then using entrepreneurial models to get them distributed at scale. Very interesting. And that entrepreneurial part of things is very important, especially when you start looking into other parts of the world, when there's a lot of great ideas and solutions that then need the teams and need the people behind them. And also the creative thinking, the creative problem solving, the critical reasoning, and then able to have that grit that you need to really push these forward when it's not easy to find solutions to social natural challenges that exist. And recently, I, I want to take things a little bit global. So you've had two, I mean, you've had many, but the two we're going to talk about today are trips abroad. Of course, you spent time in Africa, which I'd love to focus on. And then also most recently, Chile, which you've been to and you're going back to. And from what I know about your trip to Africa, we'll start there. You took a trip to look into clean technology and e-mobility, electric vehicles, and this is something I want to focus on today because, of course, over here in North America and in Europe and many parts of the world, technology is advancing rapidly and at a distinct pace. And there are other parts of the world moving at their own distinct pace for a lot of different reasons. We're in different cultures. We have different infrastructure, different uh, setups of our government and different history and even landscapes that influence all of this. And including countries like Africa, of course, which hold a very special place in my heart. I'm not, I'm lucky enough not only to have studied examples of amazing entrepreneurship addressing both social and natural issues in countries in Africa, but also to have seen it firsthand when I lived there um, in Tanzania in 2016. And I'm lucky enough to have a perspective that reminds me of how little I really know about the world and how much there is to learn. So back to your trips, not only to Africa, but to Chile. So what I know and I'd love for you to tell me about is your goals in your own words. Um, but you were looking into these solutions to essentially reduce carbon emissions and use clean technologies as a solution to make make things just a bit better, but in a completely different space, which is quite a challenge. Um, and can you tell me which countries in Africa did you visit? And of course, the background and goal of that trip? Well, so I should say, uh, been working in Africa for over 20 years. Uh, and we've worked in uh, West Africa, East Africa, Southern Africa. Um, and, um, you know, for example, 
uh, one of the companies that we launched from the laboratory, uh, Envirofit International, uh, distributes uh, clean cooking solutions um, mm -hmm. all over Africa. But the specific uh, trip at the beginning of uh, September was to participate in the Africa Climate Summit, which was bringing together leaders from all over Africa to um, address their common ambitions um, around uh, around climate. And, and, and it's, uh, it's worth noting uh, that uh, Africa has only contributed less than 5% of the global carbon emissions, but they are disproportionately uh, suffering the impacts. But uh, uh, perhaps relevant uh, to, to your audience is uh, steps that are being taken around uh, vehicle electrification. Uh, and I would say that uh, while I've uh, been to Africa probably, you know, a few dozen times, uh, the uh, uh, I haven't been since uh, COVID. So it's been, uh, been three years since I've been back. And uh, the very first steps were being taken then around vehicle electrification and um, really, um, and, and that really began not with uh, the, uh, uh, the way it has in the US with uh, you know, the Tesla route, but really beginning at the other end of the economic pyramid um, with electrification of two wheelers of motorcycles. Uh, and it's worth noting that um, uh, much of the personal transport in many African cities is on two-wheel taxis. Uh, and one of the companies uh, that uh, was uh, launched from uh, Powerhouse is a company called uh, Factory Ventures. Factory uh, invests in early-stage companies working on energy access in developing nations. And one of their investments was in uh, uh, Kigali, Rwanda, a company called uh, Ampersand, uh, making two-wheel uh, motorcycles. But, the, but the, the most recent trip, beginning of September for the Africa Climate Summit, uh, was, uh, uh, I'll, I'll just begin with the anecdote that uh, uh, they, have, uh, uh, they have Uber uh, in Africa. And uh, I was... Uh, trying to uh, get an Uber, and what picked me up was a uh, Nissan Leaf. And so uh, I started a conversation with the, with the driver to get his story and then actually just booked the car the next day uh, for him to uh, uh, take a tour and re-familiarize uh, with Nairobi and understand the, the pace of, of change there. Um, but... Uh, you know, that story was interesting. Uh, yes. so, he, uh, so these, as uh, the way I understand it, an entrepreneur imported um, somewhere around 50 um, used Nissan Leafs uh, from Japan. Uh, and they are the, uh, they, uh, all, the, all the controls and screens are in, are in Japanese. <laughs> uh, and then um, also established um, uh, a few charging stations. And it's worth noting that the charging infrastructure is very different. You know, so much of our charging infrastructure can actually be um, uh, at, at homes. Uh, but uh, that, you know, very few, uh, much fewer 
single homes uh, with uh, with garages. So, uh, so I had the opportunity to to tour around, uh, see some of the uh, charging uh, infrastructure, but uh, uh, and uh, you, you know and 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 recognize the uh, that the issues we might have here with uh, uh, range anxiety and uh, uh, vehicle charging um, are uh, very very different uh, in an area that is uh, starting so much uh, so much earlier. There's only a few hundred EVs now in Kenya, but they have uh, 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 significant ambitions uh, and. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, Kenya does have a very ample electric grid. Uh, well, I'm sorry, they have ample electric capacity and supply from hydroelectric facilities and from some large geothermal facilities. But they actually uh, have some challenges in the build out of the grid. So that presents a uh, just a, a, a different uh, set of, of challenges. It does. It's the potential that's there and then having to build the grid from what I know. Yeah, it's it's pretty challenging and it's um it's also new. It's a pretty serendipitous, you know, that you were picked up by a leaf now and then you got to see the infrastructure. Can you paint a bit of a picture of what you did see about the charging that was this Nissan Leaf was able to do. So uh, I know that you said, you know, that home charging, not so much. Also, this is a unique case where, you know, this entrepreneur brought in these EVs. But yeah, how how was this driver able to charge their Nissan Leaf? Yeah, uh, so uh, he actually uh, leases the car from from the company. Uh, and and that also gives him access to uh, uh, just a, a relatively small handful. Uh, I think it's just uh, three or four uh, charging stations that they've established, or that particular company has established in uh, uh, in in Nairobi. Hmm. Uh, but uh, and the the, the the charger itself uh, was, uh, I believe, a drive electric unit, uh, and couldn't find the capacity, but it appeared to be somewhere in the vicinity of a, a 40, 50 kilowatt uh, uh, facility. But but interesting on. As we were uh, charging, uh, another very new uh, vehicle pulled up, and it is um, the um, uh, showpiece model um, of the very first uh, uh, EV, well, actually the very first passenger car being produced in Kenya. Hmm. Uh, And it's a... uh, Company called um, uh, AutoPacks that has uh, that sells vehicles, but they also have established a partnership uh, to assemble EVs, uh, and their partnership is with um, a company in uh, uh, China that is um, a. Uh, uh, in, in fact, this is really a kitted and assembled uh, vehicle. I think it's called the Wuling Air, uh, which is a, a small uh, uh, two-door EV that uh, four-passenger 
uh, that is, and I think that's a partnership between um, SIA, SAIC mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, GM in, in China. So, uh, so these are, uh, these are um, symbols. Uh, but uh, their goal is over time to begin manufacturing uh, as much of the capacity of the other components uh, as uh, as they can. Very interesting. A, Go ahead. Uh, uh, maybe a uh, but uh, another company that uh, I visited uh, while I was at the uh, in Nairobi um, was. Um, a company producing uh, two-wheelers in uh, in Nairobi. And this is a company called Rome, and they were also investment uh, that uh, um, Factory Ventures uh, invested in. And they uh, this is a vehicle um, designed and completely um, built in uh, in Nairobi. They they do have they do have um, Frames and motors and batteries coming in from from that they've sourced from different places, but uh, uh, but definitely uh, designed in Kenya for the Kenyan market, and it is a it's a vehicle that uh, can both be um, uh, charged uh, or it can uh, there's also it can take two batteries and uh, it can also be uh, there's also a battery swap. So the the uh, the primary battery is um, is fixed to the vehicle, and that's uh, when you could uh, charge it, you know, uh, wherever. But you can also um, rent a second battery if you need the extended range. Um, and uh, uh, there was also uh, stories they told of people that would uh, uh, when they needed to go beyond the. I think with two batteries, it's about 140, 150 kilometer range. Uh, and there are uh, stories of uh, people then strapping additional batteries to their uh, to the back of the, of the bike to give them that much extended range. Now, I'm not sanctioning that. You know, kids don't do this at home. But that is an interesting and a genius way to deal with the uh, uh, with the less established charging structure in uh, in Kenya. Right. Instead of a gallon of gas on the back of your motorcycle, just uh, some couple <laughs> couple extra batteries, which is is really cool. And um, my experience there too was the the two wheel taxis. They're really able to access a lot of places too, especially if, you know, there's a lot of dirt roads, um, which it might be easier to navigate. And this is the way that is common to get around as well. So I know that you spoke a little bit to, you know, other countries, including, you know, Kenya and what you've seen in Nairobi have been going about, you know, a transition to e-mobility or cleaner energy is working with what exists, which is obviously a very different landscape than what most people are used to in the U.S. and that they're embracing, you know, let's not start somewhere with cars, but maybe like really work on the e-mobility in terms of the two wheelers. So do you think that approach is essential instead of coming in and saying, let's, you know, the Nissan Leafs is interesting, of course, but to come at the let's meet us where we are and take it from there. What do you think about that aspect? Uh, yeah, and there are different motivations for adoption in 
in different parts of Africa. And it, and it does depend on, um, on uh, the fuel price, the relative pricing of, uh, of electricity and fuel. And in many of these countries, uh, fuel may be subsidized. So that, that introduces all the normal market uh, perversities that you see when you subsidize fuel because it then makes it that much more difficult to bring in a market-based uh, option like, uh, like EVs, which is a, a bit of an inverse from what we have here now where we provide additional incentive to the, uh, to the EVs. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also seeing, uh, so you do see that small step introduction in the two-wheeler market and it is very much driven by the economics, uh, the uh, just the, the the cost of of uh, of uh, uh, to the driver, um, and uh, but you also see then uh, a push to uh, inner city to uh, to uh, municipal buses because uh, some of the you know many of the cities have uh, just. Uh, uh, you know, very se- severe uh, challenges with air quality, primarily particulate emissions. And so switching from uh, from diesel buses to uh, electric can have a, a dramatic impact, particularly because uh, it's also worth noting that many of the vehicles used in, in Africa are um, vehicles that have uh, used vehicles that are imported uh, from Europe or the U.S., oftentimes when they no longer meet uh, emission standards um, in the uh, uh, in the you know in the U.S. or Europe, uh, they may then uh, be exported to uh, lower income um, uh, countries, uh, and you you see that in well you see it throughout Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Uh, so the the difference between a relatively old school um, uh, diesel engines with very high emissions uh, to a uh, a clean EV bus can be uh, can be uh, uh, you know re- really provide a, a significant opportunity, and that is an area where you're seeing more interest from the governments to help. Uh, uh, to help fund the uh, the gap in in terms of bringing in these uh, clean, cleaner mobility, very interesting. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but you then have have even more of a challenge on understanding, uh, you know, because you're with your electric bus, then you have even more of a need for high power charging, or you need to go to a, a battery swap model. And you see that, for example, in India, you see the. Uh, buses that uh, do have uh, battery swap uh, uh, built into them. Right. Of course, because it is an ecosystem, right? You can't just have the glorious EV bus without the infrastructure to support it. But the the idea of the public transport to go electric makes a lot of sense there because I think that's also, you know, in some cities in the U.S., it's very popular to take public public transit, but uh, not all cities, but what I did experience and what it seems significant is, you're right, that particulate pollution that is in those urban settings that can really just be dense, as we know. And you mentioned that the percentage that Africa 
contributes to the global climate crisis and pollution in general is disproportionate to the negative impacts that is experienced by people in the countries of Africa. So I'm sure I know that it is significant to include the communities, the leaders, the local expertise, the local knowledge into any kind of work that is done there because they are experiencing it. They have tried solutions. They understand the culture and the intricacies of their countries. So how have you seen the involvement of the local expertise in, in your work and in your studies really find that balance and solution oriented approach that really worked? Uh yeah, clearly uh, local participation is key to uh, success of any um, scalable um, enterprise and intervention. Uh, one of the one of the challenges, though, I would say, and we learned this from our uh, very first enterprise, uh, which was um, developing um, uh, two-stroke retrofits. And the, uh, the, the challenge is you have the, the tragedy of the comet uh, in the sense that uh, the motivation for an individual driver to invest um, in um, the reducing the emissions for everyone in the locality uh, is, is not strong. You really, uh, you really want the, everyone else to be reducing their emissions. Um, but essentially, you want the guy ahead of you because you're breathing his smoke. You know, you want him to adopt the new solution, but you don't care as directly for what comes out of, of your tailpipe. So that does uh, bring us to the, the need for collective action and um, collective will. And that is um, an area where there has been, uh, you know, a, a great... Uh, I'm always encouraged by the, uh, by the, uh, by the you know the community mindedness, uh, but it's then complicated by the fact that the uh, that the investment resources um, are just more limited in uh, these um, emerging economies. Mm -hmm. Really, to be able to incentivize that is an interesting challenge, uh, and understanding exactly what would work with trial and error. I I know that that takes uh, a lot of work and investigation and truly putting things into practice and seeing what is found to be most valuable in these communities, because you cannot enact change without the local engagement, as you have mentioned. And to pivot a little bit, I mean, I could talk about Africa forever, uh, but also your your work in Chile and so or Chile. And as my friend Veronica says, but <laughs> Uh, so you've s done work there as well, and I'd love to hear how distinct or similar it is to what we've been talking about with your work in Africa. Yeah, uh, Chile is uh, really interesting. It is, in um, many ways, the first um, uh, medium-income country in, in Latin America. Um, and interesting, the recent McKinsey report um, has identified that Chile has the uh, be the, the one of the very few countries that could achieve um, net decarbonization by 2040 and do so profitably. Mm -hmm. Now, the the, the, the factors uh, that uh, play into uh, very different in Chile is that uh, they have um, they have some of the best uh, renewable resources uh, on Earth. Uh, in the north of the country, in the Atacama Desert, 
literally is uh, one of the, the greatest solar resources. It's uh, it's high, it's dry, uh, very intense uh, sunlight. Uh, so great solar resources in the north. Um, in the south, in Patagonia, you have some of the, uh, the, the strongest and most reliable wind resources uh, on Earth. So you have a, a tremendous uh, um, capacity for renewables. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they have no domestic um, production of hydrocarbons. So everything is important, uh, whether it's um, coal, um, gasoline, diesel, or natural gas. All of it is imported, so it, it carries a um, a significant, uh, a significantly higher economic cost than we have in the U.S. So uh, it's uh, there is uh, uh, even more of an incentive uh, to adopt uh, uh, electrification, or uh, there's a lot of interest right now in uh, in hydrogen, and uh, that's particularly. Uh, and, and one of the things that uh, Chile is is known for, particularly in the north, uh, is the mining sector. So they are, I believe, the maybe the second, uh, the, the the first or first or second uh, largest producer of copper, mm. uh, and uh, half of the and, and they have, but they have uh, ambitious climate goals as a country, and half of the uh, greenhouse gas emissions from the mining sector is from the use of diesel fuel uh, in just a relatively small number of these massive um, three and four hundred ton mining trucks. So uh, there is a significant interest in understanding how you can take uh, uh, renewable resources in Chile and particularly because the mining's in the north and the solar's in the north. There's a lot of focus on how do we uh, how do we use the, the solar resources, um, uh, you know, water, you know, uh, that from desalinated seawater to create hydrogen that can either be used directly uh, in these mining trucks or can be uh, used as a feedstock to then create um, other um, uh, hydrocarbons, renewable hydrocarbons. And, you know, for example, in, uh, in fact, in uh, the far south of Chile, uh, there is a company that, you know, still at a pretty small scale is taking uh, wind energy, using it to create hydrogen, and then using that uh, uh, with, um, uh, with carbon dioxide to create uh, uh, gasoline, to create uh, liquid fuels, uh, basically a gasoline substitute. And that uh, they have a a partnership with uh, Porsche uh, mm -hmm. to uh, uh, with the goal of uh, of uh, identifying pathways to sustainable liquid fuels, uh, so you can continue to drive outrageously powerful uh, uh, combustion sports cars <laughs> when you're not driving your outrageously powerful uh, EV sports cars uh, from Porsche. That's in incredibly interesting, the expansive potential and work that is being done in Chile. And so I'm interested in, you mentioned a lot of the efforts that are going on there from renewable energy to biofuels, right? And 
what particularly has interested you that you've really felt drawn to that has also perhaps had the most interesting challenges? Well, um, I'll say that, that some of the, uh, this goes back to our history here at, uh, uh, at Powerhouse. So um, when I started the lab in 1992, um, we identified that, uh, you know, we weren't going to compete with University of Michigan on automotive engines. We weren't going to compete with University of Wisconsin on truck and bus engines, but that no one was uh, really uh, filling the innovation needs of the, uh, uh, of the uh, um, industrial engines. And so we work on these um, massive industrial engines that are used on um, uh, to, to push natural gas through the, through the pipelines or these, um, you know, two or uh, two megawatt engines that are used in uh, for electric power generation, but are also used in those mining trucks uh, that are used, uh, for example, in, in Chile. Uh, we also coincidentally back uh, about 30 years ago, did the first systematic studies on the combustion of uh, hydrogen natural gas mixtures. It was 30 years ago. Uh, it was work that no one cared about for the next 27 years, but it's uh, it's all anyone wants to talk about right now. So there is a um, there is a huge focus on looking at how we um, transition from our current reliance on um, uh, fossil fuels to um, to uh, cleaner fuels, to low carbon fuels of the future, and and, and really a lot of that uh, centers around around hydrogen. Uh, so uh, we have the those uh, the big uh, two megawatt engines they use in the mining trucks. We have them here at the lab, uh, and uh, we have projects to, uh, and and we also have um, gas turbines and these massive pipeline engines. So we have projects in all those to show that we can run on 100% natural gas, 100% hydrogen, or uh, anything in between. Wow. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of just, just the, uh, some of the, the, uh, uh, the, the real interest in, in, the, in kind of the work we've, and the partnerships we're looking at in Chile just stem from the fact that uh, we're one of the few, I mean, there's no other, uh, university anywhere that works at the scale that we do with these uh, with this massive equipment. So um, a lot of what we're trying to do is understand the, uh, the pathways to that so that there is a pathway to, uh, uh, you know, zero out our carbon emissions between now and uh, 2050. Very interesting. And, and I mentioned briefly in your intro, this focus on hydrogen for heavy duty applications. And of course, there's a lot of questions out there about hydrogen. And honestly, I see a lot of doubt out there. And maybe it's more focused on the doubt for scale. But I see this is a pretty niche application that is also has significant implications if, you know, it is in, in, enacted, right? Mining one is a it's something that we need to go electric, but also it has its own negative impacts. So can you speak a little bit to the naysaying that you've heard in terms of hydrogen fuel? Uh, sure. Uh, and uh, we, could, we could do a whole discussion on that. I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> I understand that there's uh, 
two pathways to get hydrogen. Um, 98% of the hydrogen we use today uh, doesn't come from renewable energy and water. It comes from uh, splitting of natural gas through a process called steam reforming. And then you create CO2 and, uh, and, if it's, and it's vented. That's what we call gray hydrogen. Uh, there's an idea now that if we capture the CO2 and, and uh, put it below ground, uh, then we have captured the, the CO2. That's what is called green hydrogen, uh, I mean, blue hydrogen. But what Chile is really interested in and, and what increasingly there's uh, interest in is uh, basically taking uh, uh, electricity, taking uh, solar electrons, um, using that to split water, uh, and then that's the process we call green hydrogen. Uh, and in the U.S., you will see with a lot of focus on the recently announced hydrogen hubs uh, with incentives and Inflation Reduction Act, um, it allows both blue and green hydrogen, but it, it moves away from the colors and it sets a carbon intensity standard. Um, but in... Uh, Chile, they don't have the hydrocarbon resources, so uh, it's all focused on green hydrogen. Mm. Um, and so uh, there is a, uh, a massive effort to understand uh, not only how to put it into the mining sector, but uh, just how to use it to uh, even out the, uh, the electric grid. And I'll just say, uh, uh, and, and that's actually... The one area that's getting particular focus in the U.S. because as we as we decarbonize the grid, and the state of Colorado is uh, decarbonizing. In fact, you know it's very plausible that we would have a uh, a, uh, a, a totally a zero carbon grid by 2040. So installing massive amounts of wind, massive amounts of solar. But what happens when the the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine? Uh, we're not going to put in acres of uh, Tesla power walls. Uh, so how do we store the energy uh, for those uh, intermittent needs? And that's where hydrogen comes in. Uh, you can uh, you can basically uh, uh, use excess electrons when they're available uh, to create hydrogen. You know, and they're looking very actively at then putting massive amounts of hydrogen uh, below ground in. Um, in, in storage facilities that can then be extracted to generate power when we need it. Lots of new stuff there, and uh, you know, it's, there's a, a lot of uh, debates going on. But that is that is the appeal of hydrogen is that it has is as a uh, storage medium to allow us to uh, facilitate uh, massive. Um, introduction of uh, or, or adoption of renewable energy. Very interesting. I have a distinct interest in the grid and how we will adopt and adapt to renewable energy resources, because as you mentioned, they can be intermittent, but the demand for electricity is instantaneous. So to find some way to have the solid base to work with and then use the solar and the wind and hydro on top of it is very important and an interesting challenge that I, I love to see how research and companies are going about solving that solution. So I have a question about scaling hydrogen as do you how far off do you think we are from scaling that? I mean, I know you talked, you know, kind of small scale Colorado, but I think that's also a doubt is like, how can we scale this? It seems a bit challenging. Have you find it, found any insights that point to maybe it's in this direction? 
uh, uh, I'll just say that there is um, massive uh, interest in green hydrogen right now. Uh, we have some bottlenecks. Uh, if uh, right now, if you were to uh, uh, place an order uh, for a uh, megawatt of electrolyzers, you know, to you know, basically take electricity, uh, split water, turn it into electricity, you know, y- you would have a production date years out. Um, just in, for example, in Chile alone. They have a goal of, um, of establishing putting in uh, 50 gigawatts of clean hydrogen production. Um, we have, uh, as of about a year and a half ago, the global production capacity for electrolyzers was about a half a gigawatt annually. So it would. So Chile has these goals to buy. A um, hundred years of total uh, electrolyzer production just for their needs. Now, mm-hmm. having said that, there is massive scale up right now of the ability to produce electrolyzers, uh, and then so 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 th- th- those are you know you have to uh, uh, you have to build the production equipment before you can start splitting the molecules. So that's a lot of the work that's being. Uh, done right now, but it's also an area where there has been uh, very little investment uh, for the last 30 years. So we are essentially um, scaling up an industry that barely exists. Now, it's it's an industry that there's massive investment going into, but we're trying to catch up on the, the science. We need to improve the efficiency of electrolyzers there's we need to reduce the uh, need for precious metals um in the, in, in those um and there's reasons to be uh, hopeful on the technology pathways uh, but um there's uh, there's a lot of scrambling uh, by uh, all sectors to catch up right now I can definitely echo that sentiment from what I've seen where it's trying to move as fast as we can to solve solutions and advance technology that really just does take time and investment that can come from private organizations, public organizations, and of course, the government. So to pivot a little bit back to your work in other countries, how how significant is the role, do you think, of governments to specifically invest in clean mobility or is it more up to the private sector or not clean mobility, clean technology? Yeah, um, it, it, it obviously varies by sector. Um, and in I would say in, uh, I, I hate to use a broad brush when we talk about Africa because it's, you know, it's 52 53 countries, um, and uh, the uh, scientific, the investment to um, uh, available to um, develop new solutions is quite limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really where the you know most of the development dollars are coming from: uh, Europe, uh, Asia, the U.S. But it is interesting. Uh, uh, Chile has made a uh, massive, uh, you know, very significant commitments. They have uh, significant climate goals. 
they have allocated uh, research funds to uh, help, uh, uh, you know, accelerate uh, innovation capacity within uh, within the, within the country. Uh, but a lot of the investment is uh, also coming from uh, private industry, uh, and so in Chile, uh, I'll be. Uh, uh, when I go back uh, next week, it will be to it will, I'll be uh, uh, having uh, conversations with um, a company called Copec, which is the largest supplier of uh, fuels in in Chile. I think they provide um, um, I don't know a bit under half of the gasoline, but uh, but over eighty five percent of the diesel fuel, particularly for the mining sectors. But they also uh, recognize that uh, Chile has um, goals of decarbonizing, certainly by 2050, but is pushing hard to get there by 2040. So if you're a company that owns uh, chains of uh, gas stations and fueling facilities uh, throughout uh, Chile, uh, uh, you're, um, you know, and, and to their credit, they are in the, uh, in the planning mode to understand that transition understanding their role in um, um, creating the energy uh, in um, in providing the mobility solutions whether it's electric charging or charging stations um, but if even to the extent of understanding what do you do with all of the um, uh, with all the filling stations uh, that you have what does uh, and so do those become um, distribution centers uh, for last mile distribution. They become uh, do they become of uh, 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 food service. Uh, you know, so so they they are um, very actively planning uh, their transition, and and I, I find that to be uh, uh, to be heartening that they're you know taking the the long view, um, sort of buying into the vision of where the. Uh, the Companies going, you know, in, in many ways, uh, uh, you know, contrast that with a, um, you know, pick your large U.S. oil company, uh, which um, uh, produces, refines, and and distributes uh, 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 gasoline and diesel fuel. So there is, uh, uh, and you know, if that transition happens, uh, there. Um, they're they're losing revenue on the production side. You know that that uh, from a, a company like a Copec, uh, that uh, that really doesn't uh, doesn't uh, doesn't apply in the same way. So anyway, I it, I, I find it interesting that there are um, things we can definitely learn uh, from uh, from Chile. You know they're they're strategically looking at how do they how do they move clean energy into a few key sectors like the mining sector. Um, but also how they uh, decarbonize or distribute sectors like uh, just uh, personal transportation. Uh, but they're doing that both with um, um, government incentives uh, and uh, but they're engaging the, the private industries in getting them on board as well. I think there's such a balance to be struck there, of course, that will make the most optimized solutions really come into play between the 
nonprofit, for-profit, government, private, public sectors, for sure. Thank you for diving into that. It's extremely interesting, and I could probably keep asking you questions for days, and I would love to. Um, so I, I wanted to point out that, of course, this is a space where there are a lot of unknowns. And as we explore the unknowns, we get some knowns, but also then there's more and more unknowns. So what questions are you left asking today about the work that you do, the work that you've done that you're really looking to answer? Well, uh, I'll begin by saying that I am a, uh, I'm a technical optimist. I think they, we have tremendous capacity to keep um, pulling technology rabbits out of the hat. Uh, but the caveats are that we have to do that with uh, um, eyes wide open and understand the broader um, sustainability arguments and that uh, we don't want to make sure that we aren't creating a new problem. But I also have to say that um, in, in many ways, I have more confidence in our, develop, in our ability to develop the technology solutions than in our uh, social uh, will a societal will to adopt those uh, at uh, at scale. Uh, so, I, and that really uh, uh, boils down to uh, uh, culture, engagement, uh, education, uh, and it's not enough to just uh, hole up in the laboratory and uh, try to crank out new uh, uh, new solutions. We have to be engaged in the uh, uh, in the you know, in the in the messiness of trying to build consensus and, and bring uh, people along on that journey, uh, and it is. Uh, but that that's global. It's not just uh, you know, and that means we we do have to gauge uh, here in Fort Collins, uh, in the U.S. and around the world. And uh, that's uh, I'll say it's been my um, privilege and pleasure to have. Uh, being able to contribute uh, both here in the U.S. and uh, in so many awesome places uh, that I've yes. been able to travel to. I mean, of course, you have worked tremendously hard to do this. You are dedicated and you've been able to have, yeah, the privilege and the honor of traveling and seeing how we're working towards a greener future, how we are able to enact solutions, try and fail and succeed, and then take those learnings, whether they're from very close or far away, and try to make them general enough to be applied somewhere else. But of course, you have to consider the certain circumstances wherever work is being done, because it is different city to city, state to state, country to country, and culture to culture. And you do bring up a really interesting point that I'd love to dive into in other podcasts. It's not exactly EV related, but there is a human dimensions part of this, a behavioral part of this transition to electric transition to green energy uh, sure. that yeah that is t such a huge part of this and you see it in uh, you know, realistically range anxiety is more of a human perception issue than it is a uh, supply of electrons issue it's exactly right there's you know the word of mouth is one of the strongest things in our world and reading one headline or having some tradition or some belief can really determine range anxiety or other thoughts about emerging technology and changing the ways that we live that could be for good, but that are really holding us back. And um, those human dimensions of natural resources of green technology is, is something that I know that folks are studying how to really combat this to 
understand the underlying motivations. And it, it is something that I'm happy that you touched on because it is very important to consider. You can see it from everywhere, from very strong governments to comments on YouTube videos. There's an influence everywhere of uh, new things. And then of course, how we're going to enact them and the, the doubts that come in. And also the folks that are gung-ho that are ready to say, yeah, let's embrace it, those early adopters. So studying that is very interesting too. And in a place, in a space that is adorned with intricate and complex challenges, seemingly everywhere you look, what keeps you motivated on the day-to-day -to, -day to do this amazing work? Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a grandfather now. And uh, so it, that, that uh, uh, and uh, much of the, um, you know, my generation certainly uh, contributed um, a lot to the uh, um, issues we're dealing with in terms of climate change. Um, I feel like we have that obligation uh, to address that. But uh, we've also developed a toolbox uh, of this idea of science to solutions to scale uh, that um, we uh, think that uh, we want to uh, we want to uh, use as uh, to get solutions uh, implemented uh, with the speed and scale required. Great takeaways. I can have share similar motivations and I can only imagine that what you've seen in your work and others' work has yeah, shown you that that toolbox is strong, that there is potential. And like you said, you're a technical optimist, right? So hanging in there with that. And if our audience wants to keep in touch with the work that you're doing or uh, work that you're involved in, what is the best way that they can stay up to date? Uh, Energy.colostate.edu. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Like I said at the beginning and before we even met on this podcast, I was already excited and knew that I would love to have you on to get specific about many of the topics and the research that you've done. So I appreciate you taking this time. And I do hope that you can come on again to share your work because it is extremely significant. You have a wealth of knowledge and a lot to share and great questions that you're asking as well. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Francie. It, uh, it was my pleasure. Of course. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the Out of Spec podcast. If you enjoyed, of course, let us know. If you have questions for Dr. Brian Wilson, please ask them in the comments and I'll do my best to get them answered. Please tune in next time and enjoy your day. We'll see you next time on the Out of Spec podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.